to take your Bible, if you have it there with you, and I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. John Henry Hopkins was a brilliant scholar. He was a man that had a law degree, but he also went to seminary so he could serve in the Episcopal Church. He also happened to be a reporter for a, uh, a New York newspaper. Now, though he had no children of his own, um, Hopkins absolutely enjoyed the childlike spirit of the Christmas season, especially as he got to watch his nieces and nephews open up their Christmas gifts and celebrate Christmas um, with his family. Well, in 1857, John Henry Hopkins wanted to do something special for his brother's children at Christmas time, and so he decided that he would give them a Christmas gift that would be both entertaining as well as educational. Now, a lot of times we parents fumble the ball when it comes to trying to do something for our kids that's both entertaining and educational. Sometimes we are too educational and they don't enjoy the gift, and other times we're too entertaining and it has nothing to do with their life or education whatsoever. So he wanted to strike a balance for his nieces and nephews. So what did John Henry Hopkins do? Well, he sat down at his desk uh, with his pen in hand and he began to write a tribute to the legendary visitors from the East who were described here in Matthew chapter 2. And so as he wrote out this poem, he tried to imagine what it would have been like to be one of those wise men traveling from the east, traveling hundreds of miles, maybe on camelback or something like that. And so though it was largely a work of his imagination, the song that he came up with as a gift to his nieces and nephews is a song that's sung far and wide every Christmas. And it goes like this, we three kings of Orient are... Bearing gifts, we traverse afar. Field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. Star of wonder, star of light, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. And so that's the song, We Three Kings. Now, whether they were kings or not, the text of Scripture does not say. More than likely, they were not kings, but they are magi or wise men who came from very well-to-do standing in the East. Now, what's amazing is when you consider the Christmas narratives, both in Matthew's gospel as well as the gospel of Luke, uh, you find every social class of humanity represented at the birth of Christ. I mean, think about it. Uh, the shepherds, in Luke's gospel, represent the poor, those that may be overlooked by the rest of society. They were there at the birth of Christ. Jesus was born for the lower class. You've got Mary and you have Joseph. Joseph is a carpenter by trade. They're not wealthy by any stretch, but neither are they on the lowest rung of society. They represent the middle class. Not the poorest, but not the wealthiest either. Well, these wise men or kings, again, they're not kings, but they represent those who come from perhaps privileged class, those who come from perhaps the upper crust of society. 
And by the way, isn't it an amazing thing that here you have the ground is level as far as the birth of Christ is concerned. The ground is level as far as the cross of Christ is concerned. It doesn't matter what your background is, what social standing you have. All of that is irrelevant. Uh, what matters is your need for a Savior. And that's something that we see illustrated here in the birth of Jesus. Now, the song says, we three kings. Now, in our imagination, we, we assume that there are three wise men. Every nativity scene that I've ever seen always has three wise men represented, even though the text of Scripture does not say that there were three. We assume that there were three because of the three gifts that are mentioned, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I'm a, I actually have heard that there were four wise men, but one was turned away because he brought a fruitcake. Um, but... <laughs> It's not true. But the wise men, now they're not, there, they're not there the same night that Jesus makes his entrance into the world in a stable uh, with the shepherds. But sometime later in Bethlehem, the wise men from the east, they show up and uh, it, it, it's fulfillment of prophecy. The fact that kings from the east wealthy to do individuals from the east would come and be present at the birth of Christ and bring their treasures to him. So I want to take up this particular text in Matthew chapter 2, the visit of the magi or the wise men. So if you've got your Bible there, let's read beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Now when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So that's Micah chapter 5, verse number 2. Here it is being told by his religious scholars that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem the city of David. This would be fulfillment of prophecy. And so verse 7 says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, how many of you know that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven? Not everyone who seemed to honor the Lord with their words actually honor him in their hearts and with their lives. There is such a thing as a word-only faith that is not legitimate. Herod says he's going to worship, but now his his motives, well, they're, they're far from ideal. Verse 9 says, After listening to the king, the wise men went on their way, 
And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And we'll stop reading right there. We three kings, I want to speak from that subject this morning. Uh, in this passage of scripture, we find here at, in the birth narrative of Christ, according to Matthew's gospel, uh, there are some wise men who are seeking. Uh, there's opposition that is satanic in origin. And there are gifts that are presented to the newborn king that are very symbolic. And so what I want to do is I want to, I want to walk through this passage of Scripture and uh, make at least three observations. So no, number one, notice with me the truth that these wise men who are described in this text, notice the truth that they're seeking. It's after the birth of Jesus, during the days of King Herod, that these wise men from the east come to Jerusalem and they come with this question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? As far as the identity of the wise men is concerned, they're a standard feature in the nativity story. Uh, they adorn our nativity sets. Uh, they uh, make their appearance on countless Christmas cards every year. And yet, in reality, there's not a whole lot that we know about these guys. Uh, we're not told anything in particular about what nation they're from or what nationality or ethnicity they were. Uh, the text simply refers to them as wise men from the east. In fact, that phrase wise men translates uh, a Greek word, uh, magos, which refers to those who have wisdom through interpreting and investigating the movement of heavenly bodies. Magos, it's the word we get the word magi from. So basically, it was a term used in reference to oriental philosophers, uh, scientists, if you will, those who made their living by observing the stars and the planets. Verse 1 says that they come from the east or from the Persian territory, more than likely, which is now uh, comprised of modern-day Iraq and Iran. So, so Matthew seems to have this idea of that of these Eastern astronomers or even astrologers. Uh, they come from the East, and we know that Babylon was really the epicenter for this kind of thing in the East. Now, only one other book in the Bible mentions the wise men or the magi and associates them with a position of governmental influence. It's the book of Daniel. Interestingly enough, we've been studying that book over the past several months. We'll return to Daniel next week. But Daniel refers to wise men. Daniel says that they were among the highest ranking officials in all of Babylon and even later in the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel chapter 2 verse 48 says this, uh, Nebuchadnezzar the king promoted Daniel, gave him an abundance of gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, now listen to this, and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. 
And that's a detail in the book of Daniel that we better not miss out on. The fact that Daniel sort of is promoted among the ranks of Babylon's wise men, and eventually he's promoted to a place of leadership. He's given the highest position, the chief administrator over all of the magi or wise men of Babylon. Now, from what we've seen about Daniel, we know that he was outspoken in his faith. Remember, it was Daniel who had interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the man that was made up of all of those different types of metals. In that dream, there was a stone that was cut out of a mountain, but not by a human hand. It wasn't quarried by any human hand, but it struck the king's image in his dream at its feet and and just obliterated it, destroyed it completely. And Daniel interprets that and says that uh, in the last days, God himself is going to establish a kingdom that will uh, destroy the kingdoms of man, but of this kingdom and of, of this king, there will be no end. A few chapters later, into chapter 7, it was Daniel who received the vision of one like the Son of Man, one who is a king in his own right, who receives an everlasting kingdom from the Most High, and it's a kingdom that will never pass away. All of that is central to the message of Daniel. Now, for all we know, it could be that because of Daniel's witness, The Eastern wise men or magi came to learn much about the character and the purposes of the God of Israel. It would have been five, six hundred years before the birth of Christ. Now, you can't prove this, but I just tend to think that these wise men who show up here in Matthew chapter 2 are some of Daniel's disciples. It's some of the fruit in Babylon that came as the result of Daniel being a faithful witness all of those centuries before. By the way, you never know who you're making an impact on by the way you're serving God in your life. You never know that when you share your faith and you're a witness as Christ's disciple, you have the privilege of leading someone to faith in Jesus Christ, you never know what that person will go on to do. That's why Jesus gives us the Great Commission and says, listen, as you are going, make disciples. The opportunity, the platform, the positions of influence that God gives you, leverage all of this for the sake of the kingdom of God because you never know who you're going to influence for the kingdom's sake. You never know who it is that perhaps is going to be born again, who's going to come into the kingdom of God. God's going to use you as an influential witness. I think about all of those great stories of, you know, we think about all of these famed evangelists like D.L. Moody and Billy Graham. But you know, someone had to share the gospel with them. It was a shoe salesman. Uh, Someone who led D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody comes to faith in Jesus Christ and he becomes an evangelist who preaches all over the world. An unknown preacher you probably have never heard of, Mordecai Ham, is preaching a camp meeting in Charlotte, North Carolina. Only one little boy gets saved as a result of that meeting, and it's, but it's Billy Graham. So listen, folks, as you are going, make disciples. I believe that that's what Daniel does all of these centuries before the birth of Christ. And so perhaps these wise men are maybe some of the fruit that remained from Daniel's life and his witness. So that's their identity, but what about their interest? Why is it that these wise men have shown up to begin with? Well, 
they're interested in finding the king of the Jews. Maybe through Daniel's influence, it had been stated over the centuries in Babylon among certain ranks of wise men that that stone in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had or the one that Daniel saw in his vision, one like the son of man, this is the king of Israel who's going to make his entrance into the world. So perhaps they were looking, they're interested, they're they're seeking the king of the Jews. And their interest is seen through the questions that they ask when they show up on the scene here in Matthew chapter two. They wanna know as to the whereabouts of the one who had been born king of the Jews. They had seen his star in the east. By the way, this is the very first question that's asked in the New Testament. Where is the king? How can I find the king? And by the way, isn't that a good question to ask? Who is the king? Jesus Christ is king. Where is the king and how can I find him? That's a good question that any person should ask. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So that's what these guys are doing. What was it that piqued their interest? It was the appearance of a star. Now I imagine that most of us have been intrigued this past week by the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. I don't know if any of you made it a point on Monday night of this past week to try to get a really good glimpse of the conjunction, the great conjunction as they were calling it, uh, the Christmas star as it was referred to in the media as Jupiter and Saturn were aligned and just after sunset it made for the brightest uh, object in the night sky. It was the closest that those two planets had been in more than 800 years. Only in 2020, right? Can I get a witness? Now, while that's remarkable, a lot of people were saying, well, was this what happened? You know, when, when Christ was born, was it an alignment of Jupiter and Saturn? Some have suggested that maybe it was an alignment of Jupiter and Venus uh, all of those years ago. And everybody seems to have their theories as to what this particular star was. Personally, I'm of the belief that this was a supernatural occurrence. I believe this was something that was the fulfillment of prophecy. Whether or not God used natural objects to do it, well, that's God's business. We're not told in the text. But I do believe that this was a supernatural, once-in-a-lifetime, once-ever appearing of a particular star to announce the fact that the king had been born. In fact, this was fulfillment of prophecy. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 says, A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall arise out of Israel. And so it was prophetic. It was a promise that this coming king would be associated with the appearance of a star. And then that passage goes on to describe how he would have dominion. This king would deliver his people out of the grip of the enemy. Isaiah himself even had something to say about this. Isaiah chapter 60, listen to this. Arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Listen to this. The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. 
Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. The Gentiles will come to you. The multitude of camels will cover your land. All those from Sheba shall come and they shall bring gold and incense and shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. So in other words, it was through the prophet Isaiah that, that prophecy is given that Gentile kings, wealthy visitors from the nations are going to come. And it's no coincidence that they come at the birth of God's own son, as recorded here in chapter two. Which by the way, all of this just illustrates the heart that God has for the nations. Jesus Christ is king of the Jews, but he's king born for all humanity. You have both Jew and Gentile represented at the birth of Jesus Christ. I made the point some weeks ago that in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, you have both Jew and Gentile represented in the ancestral record of Christ. The fact that he is the hope of humanity. Folks, in a time where racial tension and division has been stoked, let it be proclaimed from the pulpit that Jesus Christ is the answer for the world of humanity. Whether you be black, whether you be white, whether you be from any ethnicity, Jesus Christ is Savior of humanity, period. You cut us, we all bleed red. We all have Adam as our father. And as such, we're all in the same boat. We need a Savior, and Jesus Christ is the Savior. So you've got Gentiles who are coming as the birth of Christ is announced. So the identity, the interest, but then notice the intention of these wise men. Their intention for traveling all the way to Jerusalem is this. They've come to worship. Notice what they say there in verse number two. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star whenever it appeared in the east, but we've come to worship him. That's their intention. And so this is a declarative statement that this child that has been born, he is not just some ordinary king, he is not just some ordinary human being, but he's one who is deserving of worship. And it testifies to Christ's deity. So here you've got these these Gentile wise men or magi who understand through God's revelation Christ is no ordinary baby, but he's one who's deserving of worship. He's God incarnate. Deity wrapped up in humanity. And the only appropriate response to Christ is that of worship and obedience. Wow. Wow. So, so here is the truth then that these guys were seeking. Now, there's a second thing that I want you to notice, and it's this. Trouble. They encounter some trouble along the way, don't they? What's the trouble? Well, verse 3 says, when Herod heard of their intentions. When Herod heard that they were asking about a king who had been born, Herod becomes troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. So a star had brought them all the way from the east, all the way to Judea. Once they arrive, they go to the most logical place that a king would be found. They go to the palace. 
Yet they hadn't reckoned with the fact that this king, whose birth had been foretold by Israel's prophets, he would also be a suffering servant, as prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53. And so they come to the conclusion that the end of their journey is the palace in Jerusalem. But the king that they find there is not the infant king, but they find an illegitimate king who had assumed the throne for himself. So what's Herod's concern? Verse 3, well, he's troubled by what he hears. The city is agitated. In fact, that word troubled means to be stirred up. It's the idea of, of the waters of the sea that are agitated by a storm, choppy waves. Unlike the wise men, not everyone's enthusiastic about worshiping Christ and giving their allegiance to him as the king. That's certainly the case with Herod. Herod's the antagonist in the story. And by the way, he was one of the most wicked men to have ever lived. As far as the New Testament is concerned, as well as secular history reveals, Herod was a builder. He built a lot of exquisite buildings in his day. He embellished the temple complex there in Jerusalem. But he was also a very insecure man who was always suspicious of someone who might be rival to his throne. And yet the throne was not even his to occupy. Herod was a descendant of Esau. He was an Idumean. He was a usurper. He was someone who had bought the title of king of the Jews for himself from the Romans, and he had no legitimate claim to the throne of David. How insecure was this guy? Well, history says he was so insecure that he had his own wife killed, then had his mother-in-law killed, which I guess you'd have to do that if you killed your wife, but that's what he did. Even had his own sons killed, the Jewish historian uh, Josephus said that Herod was so concerned that no one would mourn his death that he commanded a large group of distinguished men to come at his death, and he gave an order that they should all be killed the moment that he died so that the displays of grief that he craved for himself would be shown. He wanted to see to it that somebody would mourn when he died. So this is a wicked, wicked man, this puppet king Herod. So when you come to the palace and you ask this question, where is the new king? Rest assured it's going to upset the one who's seated on the throne, the usurper. And to hear that someone is born king of the Jews, this is troublesome news to Herod. This is troublesome news to all of Jerusalem and it sort of points out that there was a culture of fear that had enveloped the city of Jerusalem and the citizens of the city because of the way that Herod had led. And so Jesus, listen to me, he is a real threat to anyone who wants to reserve the right to run his or her own life. You want to be Lord? You want to occupy the throne of your heart? Listen to me then Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel is going to be a threat to you. His enthronement demands my submission and obedience. Uh, just like Herod, there are a lot of people today that don't welcome the news that the king has come because it means that they have to vacate the throne. Two kings cannot occupy the same throne. In order for one to be king, someone has got to give in. And I'm going to tell you, Jesus Christ is not going to be the one who's going to cave. He is king. He is Lord. 
And he must sit in the place of absolute rule and authority. Why do you think Jesus would later say this in Luke chapter 6? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? Or Luke chapter 14, therefore, if any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. As Lord, he calls for an allegiance that's so supreme that it makes all other commitments look weak by comparison. That's the point in Luke chapter 14. It's a claim of authority that's binding on my life. It's a summons to unconditional surrender. There are no no hidden corridors of the human heart that are off limits to Jesus Christ the King. And yet at the same time, this claim of lordship, it triggers a resistance in our hearts if we would all just be honest, does it not? You mean to tell me that Jesus determines how I spend my money and my resources? You mean to tell me that my habits and the way that I live my life, it's not up for me uh, to determine on my own, but he's the one who has the say-so ultimately on how I live my life? There's something deep down within the human heart that sort of bristles at this notion. Why is that? It's because humanity ultimately is in rebellion against our creator because of sin. There's enmity between God and man who wants to be his own boss. We're okay with the baby who's laying in the manger, but the moment that he begins making these claims over my life, the moment that he tells me what to believe as far as sexuality is concerned and gender is concerned, The moment that he puts binding claims over my life as far as what exclusive truth is and what it's not, I don't want that king. I don't want this authority. I bristle at the notion. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but Jesus says you don't do what I say? At the core of every human heart is this impulse that says nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody. Now, are you all alive this morning? Are you with me? Are you here? Because this hits us absolutely smack dab between the eyes, doesn't it? Every single one of us. You never had to teach your kids how to have this rebellious attitude when they were coming along, did you? They just sort of inherited it. Well, you say, what do you mean? What about when you told that baby no for the very first time? No, you cannot have that. No, you cannot touch mommy's breakables. No, you cannot play with daddy's chainsaw in the garage. Why is it that they just seem to just want to do the exact opposite of what you say and they pitch a tantrum? I'll tell you why. It's because of that old Adamic nature that they were born with. Someone said that the doctrine of original sin is the one doctrine of the Christian faith that can be proven with verifiable, observable fact. Nobody tells me what to do. This is what humanity says. And yet the gospel comes along. Jesus comes along and says, I'm the king. Renounce your right to run your own life. I am the king. And by the way, he has the right to run my life because he is the creator. He's the originator. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. 
He's the captain of our salvation. So you've got Herod and his concern here, but then his counselors come along in verse four. Uh, He gathers all of his chief priests together and he asks them this question about where Christ was to be born. If what these wise men from the east are saying is true and the king has been born, Herod says, I want to know where he's been born. Where, Where is it that the prophet said that he was to be born? And Herod's religious men come together and the scholars quote Micah chapter 5 verse 2 they knew their Bible prophecy could not have been any clearer Israel's true king was to be born in Bethlehem the city of David so here you've got these wise men who've traveled hundreds of miles because they know the king has been born while at the same time you've got those who only lived six miles away were numb and indifferent to it all now stay with me here This must have been a head-scratcher for these wise men. You mean, here you've got these guys who who made it their living to know what the Old Testament Scriptures said about Messiah. They knew what the Bible said, but yet they show, we know more about Israel's king being born than Israel's religious scholars know. They're scratching their head. This would be an amazing thing if it were not all too familiar. You've got able people who have access to the Bible but are really indifferent to what it says. A small band of pagans put Jerusalem's scholars to open shame. Now, folks, listen, I'm just going to be honest. I don't mean to be eating your lunch this morning of the Sunday after Christmas, but I'm just going to keep on shooting in this hole this morning. Are you listening? The church is full of people who know what the Bible says, but they're indifferent to it all. They've got a head that's so full of facts and they can quote memory verses and they can tell you stories about the Bible and yet they're indifferent to it all. The truth of it has not changed their life. Their life really is no different than their pagan neighbors. And before you know it, you can go through an entire year having shunned the fellowship of the people of God while patting yourself on the back and telling yourself that you are indeed a follower of Jesus. When you're not approaching life any differently than the rest of the world around you. So if Herod represents those who are antagonistic to the lordship of Jesus Christ, Jerusalem's religious establishment here, the chief priests represent those who are apathetic to his lordship. They know what scripture says about him, but the weight of it's not really gripped their hearts. Unlike the wise men, their lives are not motivated by the truth of who Jesus is. It's just secondhand truth. They're so close, but they might as well be a million miles away. My heart grieves, especially over those who were religious that have occupied a church pew for years and years but they've got such hardened hearts 
calloused and indifferent hearts. And it ought to be different among those who know the God of heaven, among those who've been made painfully aware of their sin and their need for a savior, but the fact that the gospel is the greatest news that we could ever possibly hear. I don't want it to just be secondhand truth to me. I want to spend my days binge watching Netflix and devouring everything that's on social media and getting so caught up in all of the stuff that's being promoted by our political leaders today. Drinking it up as if it were living water. Let me tell you something. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God is the only thing that's going to get you through the days that are coming. That's the only thing that's going to get you ahead. Everything else in this world, ultimately it's bankrupt. Cisterns that cannot hold water. But you've been given a precious treasure in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, hard times are really a blessing for God's people because it reminds us of what's really important. And persecution, as difficult as it has been as far as church history is concerned, and painful as it has been, you know it's always had sort of a purifying effect in the lives of God's people and the church. Because people have to really determine why they believe what they believe. And maybe the disappearance of cultural Christianity could be the greatest blessing for the American church. So Herod, verses 7 and 8, I've got to finish this, but he summons the wise men secretly and he gets all the details about the star. He wants to know when it appeared so he too can go worship. At least that's what he says, but he's not interested. Jesus is too much a threat to this man who wants to reserve the throne for himself. I want to leave you with this. What about the treasures that the wise men bring what about the treasures that they bring? Verses nine, they, they, they make their way from Jerusalem to the little village of Bethlehem. By this time, Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, they're in a house. There's been some time that's transpired between his birth and the fact that he's now just a, a young little baby. But they bring treasures. And it's interesting. By the way, isn't it amazing? They go to the palace thinking that the king would be in the palace, but the usurper is in the palace. The king of kings is in a borrowed house in Bethlehem, an obscure little place. It's a reminder that God doesn't operate according to the way we think he ought to operate. His ways are much higher than our ways. His thoughts much higher than our thoughts. And it all just testifies of the humility of God, the humility of Christ. It's the mind of Christ that the apostle Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made of himself no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant and came in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Israel's true king, the Messiah king, humbled himself. And the way that he made his entrance into this world 
shows how that's the case. And everything in the Lord's life, you think about it, it was borrowed. You had a, a, a borrowed womb through which he made his entrance into our world. He's laid in a borrowed manger. The wise men, now they find him in a borrowed house. More than three decades later, he's going to be crucified to a borrowed cross. He's going to be laid in a borrowed tomb. When he's born, he's wrapped in borrowed clothes. When he dies on the cross, he's taken down and he's wrapped in borrowed clothes. Everything that he, listen, it all just testifies of the humility of God. Though he is king, he's willing to suffer in the place of others. And yet here you have this entourage from the east. Can you imagine what a scene this would have caused in sleepy little Bethlehem? Here you have these wise men who bring gifts to present to the king. What do they bring? Gold, Frankenstein, and mermaids, as one little kid said. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What is gold? Listen, gold, this is a gift fit for a king. If I go back to that song, We Three Kings, this is something that is really emphasized in the stanzas of that Christmas carol. Listen to this, the second stanza. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again, king forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. Gold is a gift that's fit for a king. Jesus Christ is king of kings. The question is, is he currently king, occupying the throne in your own life? Is he Lord in your life? Frankincense, this is a gift that was fit for a priest. The third stanza of that Christmas song says this, frankincense to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh. Prayer and praising, voices raising, worshiping God on high. Did you know that in the Old Testament, frankincense was, uh, was a fragrance that was used in the grain offerings that were offered up by the priests in the temple? Before it was offered in worship, it was applied. Frankincense was applied to the gift to ensure it was a sweet-smelling aroma. So it pictures the priestly work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. A priest. He's a king who's come to rule over me, but thank God he's a priest who represents me before the throne of his father. He's a mediator between God and man. Hebrews 4, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all points he was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He's a sympathetic priest. You're going through a tough time? Listen, there's someone in heaven who knows. Have you experienced pain? Have you experienced loss? Have you experienced sadness, darkness? There's, there's a God in heaven who has identified with you. What about myrrh? Myrrh, this is a gift that's fit for a sacrifice. The fourth stanza of the song, We Three Kings, listen to this. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume, breathes a life of gathering gloom. Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. Of all three gifts, this one would have been the most perplexing. You know what myrrh was? It was an antiseptic that was used to embalm the dead. 
Now, how would you feel if at your kid's birthday, some stranger comes and brings a funeral spray? I brought this for your baby. You're going to think, what in the world? A strange gift indeed, but it's not so strange when you consider the reason that this baby was born to begin with. He was born to die. Born to identify with us, born as one of us, yet God in human flesh, perfect in every way, but born as an atoning sacrifice who would die in the sinner's stead. But you know what? That's not how the story ends. The last stanza of the song says this, Glorious now, behold him rise. King and God and sacrifice. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Now sounds throughout the earth and skies. Why? Because this baby who was born to die conquered death through dying and through his own resurrection. And every person now who turns from their sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ bows the knee to Jesus Christ, confesses Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord because he is a living Lord. He saves to the uttermost those who come to faith in him. Is that you? Let's stand for prayer this morning. Man, there's a lot in this passage. Verse 12 says that being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, these wise men depart to their own country by another way. Let me tell you what that means. It means they went home different than the way they came. That ought to be true of every single person this morning. I want to go home different than the way that I came into this place because of the God that I can encounter through worship, through Jesus Christ. And you know what? Come midnight, Thursday night, when the clock strikes midnight and the ball drops in Times Square, if they're even doing that this year, I don't know. We cross the threshold from 2020 into 2021 by God's grace. You know something? I want to enter into a different year, a new year, different than the way that I entered in this last year. I do. Every experience this year, every encounter that we've had this year, every, listen, it's not to be wasted, but God is using it for his purposes in our lives. And what is that purpose but to bring us to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Listen, if you don't know Jesus, I urge you this morning, while you have time and opportunity, repent of your sin. Place your faith and trust in the Son of God, the true King of heaven and earth. He loves you. He gave himself for you. He will forgive you of your sin. And he's the treasure that you're seeking. Not the gold and not the stuff that glitters in this world, but Jesus, Jesus is heaven's treasure. The wise men, they bring him treasure, but you know something? They leave with a far greater treasure than the treasure they brought. What about you? Will you offer him your life, your heart? 
Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for the truth of your word. God, I don't want to be like Herod, who wants to be boss, who wants to be Lord of my own life. But I bow the knee to Jesus Christ as my Lord. I don't want to be like Jerusalem's religious scholars who have a secondhand truth. They're so familiar with the Bible and so familiar with the stories of Scripture, yet they're so calloused within. God, may that not be true of us. May that not be true of us as a church. God, may we have a passionate, hot heart when it comes to worship and when it comes to the glory of God among the nations and among our neighbors because time is so short. So Lord, may your will be done in our hearts and lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.